Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On the first segment of today's show, I'll be joined by Connecticut poet Kate Russian to talk about two movies that have had a profound influence on her understanding and love of cinema. Daughters of the Dust, a landmark 1991 drama from director Julie Dash, about three generations of African-American Gullah women from the Sea Islands of South Carolina, a movie often celebrated as the first feature film directed by an African-American woman to get a wide theatrical release in the United States. And we'll also talk about Black Orpheus, a 1959 musical from French director Marcel Camus that adapts the classical Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice to the vibrant, samba-suffused streets of Brazil's Rio de Janeiro during Carnival. On the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by the New Haven Independent's Alan Appel for a review of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, a new ensemble dramedy from director Martin McDonough that follows a grieving, defiant mother seeking justice for her dead child in a small town in the Ozark Mountains of southern Missouri. But first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the show Kate Russian. Kate is a teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts and a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. She is a regular guest on the Colin McInerney Show on WNPR and a second-time guest here on Deep Focus. Her previous uh, appearance on this program was episode 78 back in May of this year to talk about the unconventional Emily Dickinson biopic, A Quiet Passion. Kate, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Good to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. So uh, I, I mentioned that you're a regular on the Colin McEnroe Show's Nose program, which is the kind of weekly culture news roundup. And I wonder, before we talk about uh, these two movies we picked, and before we even jump back and talk about your uh, your kind of history with movies and development as an artist with movies, I wonder if you could uh, just tell me about, you know, what are, you know, you're, you're a regular on the Nose. What, what are the kinds of movies that you most love talking about on that program? Or is it just... Is it just a matter of whatever Colin picks, you do your research, get excited about it, and go for it? Or are there particular types of uh, Colin McInerney show appearances that get you most excited to talk about movies? Well, you know, um, it's it's interesting. I was, I was thinking about it recently, and actually a number of the films that we've talked about on uh, Colin's show, I may not have seen uh, on, on, on my own steam. Uh, so I think I, I, I've watched some films I might have skipped. Uh, for instance, we talked about Blade Runner. I might have skipped Blade Runner. Uh, so I feel like I bring a perspective of someone who, um, you know, kind of coming to the to the films from a different uh, point of view, and they're not necessarily my favorite films, but I love... Uh, just uh, bring up an, another perspective, a different perspective on some of the films we talk about. And could you uh, could you crystallize for me or for, for our listeners what when you say bring bring another perspective? Um, what do you mean? Well, for instance, uh, when we talked about Blade Runner, um, one of the guests knew all about the history of uh, the first Blade Runner and how the second Blade Runner connected and uh, was very positive about the film and, 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 and how connected to the first Blade Runner. Whereas what I saw, what stood out for me was the, um, what I saw as the limitations of the portrayal of the female characters mm. uh, in the film. Uh, I saw the, uh, the kind of the usual trio of the... Uh, of the prostitutes, 
the Madonna and the Witch. And I, I think that of the movies that you've picked today, in particular, Daughters of the Dust, uh, that is a you know kind of explosion of any kind of mainstream Hollywood stereotype around how African-American women uh, can be and should be portrayed on screen. So I certainly look forward to diving into that with you. But let's um, tell, tell me a bit about your uh, you know growing up with movies. Do you grow up in a movie-loving household? Did you find yourself... Uh, at a at a neighborhood theater most weekends, did you, your parents enjoy watching movies? What, what was your kind of relationship with cinema as a uh, as a young woman and as a a budding poet yourself? Yeah, well, as as a, as a kid, the first movie I remember my mother taking me to was The High and the Mighty, which was the airplane drama starring uh, John Wayne. And uh, this was this this was the time when uh, there were neighborhood movie theaters. So we actually walked from our house, and I I, I love going with my mother during the day, and uh, I love I love the theme song, and I love I love the whistle theme song. Uh, also, we grew up near uh, I grew up near um, what was actually the first drive-in theater in the United States. And uh, I remember going with my parents on dollar car load night and what fun that was, putting the speaker in the rear passenger window of the car and then um, being able to go to the concession stand and, you know, walking across the uh, little gravel hills and getting popcorn and looking at the other cars. That was a big, big big excitement for me going to the drive-in. Wow. And where, where in the country was that? This was in uh, Camden, New Jersey. Hmm. And then later on, as I got older, uh, you know, when I look back, I realized a lot of the, the Sunday afternoon, afternoon movie excursions I took with my dad were to see films he was interested in. So I saw, uh, you know, a lot of uh, war movies and cowboy movies like The Great Escape and Lawrence of Arabia and The Magnificent Seven. And you know, I um, there's a uh, there's there's a lot that has been written about Daughters of the Dust in the, in the past uh, kind of 25 years since it first came out. A number of interviews with the director uh, Julie Dash, and, and I was reading through uh, one before this episode, and she was talking about you know growing up in uh, a, in a kind of public housing complex in Long Island City. She had no idea that she, as an African American woman, you know, from the inner city, could be a filmmaker. She loved going to the movies. Uh, she loved watching movies. She loved kind of lo- losing herself in the movies. But not until she started uh, kind of taking a filmmaking course up up in Harlem and then at UCLA did she think that you know society expected her to be anything other than a secretary. <laughs> or I think she mentioned also she was really into roller derby. But I, I was so struck by how her expectations for herself as an artist were so um, so prescribed by what she saw uh, on the big screen. I wonder as, you know, in the war movies, uh, in the action movies, in the cowboy movies that you saw with your dad, I don't know, how did that, did that inform you at all in terms, or may, may give you an impression as to what you could expect from yourself as a young African-American woman, as, as a poet, as I don't know, as, as someone growing up in, in Camden, New Jersey, what, did did that make any kind of lasting impression on you, do you think? Well, I, I think the, the movies that made the most, uh, had the most impact on me as a kid 
were movies where there were African-American women, uh, they were almost always um, servants. I'm thinking of Gone with the Wind, which was was on uh, the television, ran on TV every year. You know, you saw Hattie McDaniel, um, uh, Butterfly McQueen. And then on television, uh, you know, there was uh, Amos and Andy and uh, also uh, the Louise Beaver show where she she played um, a maid. And so I think I was very affected by those movies because you just didn't have a range of African-American women characters uh, uh, in the popular culture, period. Uh, so I, I know that uh, I was aware of that. Uh, and actually one of my early poems called The Black Backups is actually a comment on American popular culture and, and the narrow range uh, of African-American women's representation within popular culture. You know, I, in our email exchanges before uh, this episode, you mentioned that you had uh, kind of prepared a poem or pulled a, a poem of yours that you'd like to read on the show that kind of directly relates to your experience uh, kind of watching movies and the way that maybe movies have made their, their way in, into your poetry, into your creative writing. I wonder if you could uh, maybe pull that up and, and share a little bit. Maybe first, um, if you could introduce the, the poem to us and, and read it, and then uh, maybe tell me a bit about how movies have made their way into your creative writing. Yeah, well, I, I think when I read this a particular poem, uh, it's an excerpt from a poem called Saturday Night at the Movies. Uh, just as a sidebar, you, you, you asked me in your notes, you know, had I grown up in uh, uh, going to video stores? Well, I actually grew up in, in the great time of movies on television with uh, NBC, Saturday Night at the Movies, and... Uh, the early show, which came on, I think, around five, and the late show, and the late, late show. And basically, if if, 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 if it was on TV, if it was a movie on TV, I saw it. The Day the Earth Stood Still with Michael Rennie, King Kong, Godzilla, Elmer Gantry, uh, the novels of Ernest Hemingway, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, all of that. And I think that... Uh, eclectic movie viewing comes through in this poem uh, that I call Saturday Night at the Movies. But there's nothing, nothing like Saturday Night at the, movie, at the Movies. But there's nothing, nothing like Saturday Night at the Movies. Miraculously, I win the Oscar with Patty Duke, then turn my back on Hollywood forever. I have other things to do. I discover the cure for cancer, me and Edward G. and our magic bullets. I weep with Catherine Hepburn, the perfect Joe, as little Beth dies. My heart cracks with Barbara Stanwyck's icy noble heart as the Titanic sinks. Diane Baker seals my faith as the Blessed Virgin takes her place until she comes to her senses leaves that soldier and comes back to take her vows. For years, for 
months afterwards, I crossed myself when I say my Methodist Baptist prayers. I am crushed when Baker does Harlow. After Saturday night at the movies, Sal Minio and Exodus, I know I must be Jewish too. Jewish and Catholic like Jesus. I must say the rosary and give up pork. After seeing Audrey Hepburn in the convent, I must become a nun. Then when Audrey rushes up the stairs and finds her best friend Shirley McClane hanging in the bedroom of the children's hour, I weep. James Gardner leaves Audrey after all and doesn't even say goodbye. And what was that little girl talking about anyway? Why didn't Audrey just say, Shirley, I love you too. Audrey, forget about Madeline. Tell your best friend you love her. Wait, Shirley, wait, no, don't do it. Roll back the film, rewrite the ending. Shirley, Shirley McLean, I love you too. And of course, that, that last poem, that last movie I mentioned is uh, The Children's Hour, based on a Lillian Hellman novel. Uh, and where as a kid, I barely knew what was going on uh, in the film. But as you can see from the poem, you know, I had, I was very invested in in these movies, and uh, they formed, informed a great deal of my uh, imagination and my creativity as a kid. Thank you so much for, for sharing that, Kate. Well, I, I want to say for our listeners, well, first you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP, New Haven's home for community radio. And that was an excerpt from Saturday Night at the Movies, a poem by uh, our guest today, Kate Russian, uh, a Connecticut poet. And Kate, I, I think you're right, even if, you know, one is too young to maybe pick up on some of the... Uh, the some of the the nuances or uh, kind of sexual subplots in any given movie. Um, I think that your poem speaks to the in, incredible identification that people have with the characters that they see on screen. Uh, and you know, when when you say that you knew that that you were a Jew as well, a Catholic as well, um, it's you know who we see um, kind of reflected back at us on, on the movie screen is very, you know, often very much informs uh, who it is that we identify as ourselves. And I think that may be a nice transition into the the two movies that you picked to, to talk about today, because they really do, um, you know, on, on the one hand, there is quite a bit of overlap uh, in terms of uh, the subjects of these movies, or maybe the themes that these movies are interested in uh, with a representation of, of blackness, of, of black people on screen, of, of sex, of death, you know, very, very common uh, themes in kind of the history of, of narrative. And yet I, I can't think of two more different styles of representation uh, of uh, one being so uh, kind of romantic and idealized in terms of uh, Black Orpheus. And then Daughters of the Dust being a, a kind of magical, mythical, uh, much more ambiguous uh, and maybe tonally uh, kind of ambivalent uh, movie. But I wonder, maybe let's maybe we can start with with Daughters of the Dust and then jump over to Black Orpheus. Um, but could you? Um, this is Julie Dash's nineteen ninety one uh, drama about three generations of African American women uh, living on the Sea Islands off of South Carolina and Georgia. I wonder if even even before you tell us about your history with this movie, 
in in a sentence or two, why why did you why did you pick this one? Why, why is this one uh, kind of stick with you so much over the years as as one influencing your your love of cinema? You know, I I, I think I chose to talk about this uh, movie today because it was such a breakthrough movie at the time in 1991, and because the be- the movie is so beautiful, it's so beautifully shot. And 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 the the, the characters, uh, the, the women characters in particular, or are are portrayed in such a beautiful and loving way. Even though um, they they face uh, hardship and uh, life and death questions. Uh, so it's it's the beauty of the of the movie. And also, I'm just very happy for Julie Dash um, that the film has gone on to win awards and it's it's been remastered uh, because there was some ambivalence about the movie when it was first uh, produced. I remember hearing uh, Julie Dash in a radio interview talking about the difficulty she faced trying to get a... Um, trying to get a U.S. distributor for the film because uh, it seems that the people in the business just didn't know what category to put it in or didn't have a category to put it in. And, and, and some of the uh, uh, people in the business uh, actually uh, saw it as a uh, 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 quote-unquote foreign film. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, uh, yeah, I, I think I may have read that interview as well. I think she w- she uh, was told again and again that there is, quote unquote, no market for this movie, right? No matter how how much uh, attention, how much detail, how much of a unique perspective she was able to offer on, on this story, this story so uh, little told in Hollywood, she, you know, she was told again and again by primarily white male producers that there was no market for this uh, black female movie. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, one of the, this, this is, as I was telling you before the show, this is my first time seeing Daughters of the Dust. And I was really, you know, I, I had to watch it twice because I think that the, f- the first, it is such an elliptical narrative. It, it takes place all over, you know, the course of one day, the kind of last day that this uh, family, the Paisant family, um, is spending on a remote island in the Sea Islands of South Carolina before a pretty large contingent of the family is going to migrate north. They're kind of going to the mainland and then leaving uh, this remote island for what they hope is, you know, more economic opportunity, educational opportunity, just to to leave their their history, the the connection to a history of slavery or trauma that perhaps you know some of the members uh, do not want to kind of spend their their days and lives having to relive again and again. But what what I was so struck by the first and second time through is the incredible diversity of black women that this story. Um, includes and kind of revolves around. Again, this is not a narrative focused on one main character, but around five, six, seven, from Nana Pezant uh, to Eula, Yellow Mary, Trula, Hagar, the older women, younger women, tall, larger, uh, you know, beautiful, severe. It's uh, We kind of get every, you know, a, a multiplicity of different ways to represent beautifully African-American women. And I wonder if, you know, if, if, that, um, if that diversity of... Uh, kind of within the you know the demographic of African American women of the diversity of representations in this movie is something that jumps out at you and if it's uh, if there is a particular character or 
uh, or attitude that you most identify with or most respond to? Oh, absolutely. Especially in the character of uh, Nan Paisant, the matriarch of the family, who was a, uh, I would say, a regular-looking, brown-skinned African-American woman uh, who was not young, you know, did not look like a model. And in fact, she looked like people in my own family or people I grew up with. Uh, and they also had, uh, Juliette also had the character of, um, of, of the woman who came from um, New Orleans who was very, very light-skinned with reddish hair. And again, uh, that certainly, that range reflects uh, African-Americans in general, and it certainly reflected African-Americans in my own family, people in my own family. And then the women had such uh, beauty, such dignity. They carried themselves uh, with dignity. And you saw African-American women uh, talking, arguing, in love, uh, being rebellious, going against the grain, uh, trying to continue traditions and uh, adorning themselves uh, in, in beautifully and also um, making uh, beautiful food. There's that uh, scene on the beach where they bring all the cloth and all the food that they prepared. Uh, and we just hadn't seen that before. Right. The, the, uh, there's a, a scene in which one of the older women is slicing up okra and preparing to make uh, a, a, a a gumbo, I believe. Uh, and it is, it, there's certainly, uh, you know, a lot of similarities to, uh, we've spoken on this show previously about Les Blanc's food movies, but there's a lot of kind of lavish, loving detail paid to, you know, this is a day of celebration for them, despite the um, the hard lives, the difficult lives that these women have led. This uh, one day is where they get to dress up, they get to wear, you know, their kind of Sunday white dresses uh, and and relax with family, despite all of the uh, kind of emotional trauma, the imminent emotional trauma of, of part of the family going to the mainland. Um, and I, I also wanted to ask you about the way that this movie deals with the history of slavery, because I don't, I think, you know, we've had um, just uh, um, last week, uh, I had an episode about Steven Spielberg's Amistad, because it's the 20th anniversary of the release of that movie and a story very close to the um, the kind of history of New Haven, a story that a lot of New Haveners identify with. But I don't think that, you know, that movie is a big kind of action set piece. It opens with the slave revolt of a slave ship off, off of Cuba, you know, very violent, very traumatic. I think that this movie gets at the trauma of slavery, but in a much, uh, a much more, for lack of a better word, creative and artistic uh, way than I think I had ever seen done before on screen. In, I'm thinking in particular of the way that some of the older women still bear the... Um, the kind of indigo purple stain of uh, of having you know worked uh, in boiling indigo uh, while still slaves on a plantation in the Sea Islands you know fifty years previously uh, that kind of purple stain is still on their hands and kind of forever yeah. forever marks them um, I don't think I'd ever seen slavery represented that way yes yes it, it, it was it was beautiful I you know as you were talking about that scene that that image came back to me 
of 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 the uh, women with their hands stained with the indigo. And yes, it's there. It's a powerful uh, marker. It's connection. Uh, the hands represent love and care and friendship uh, and going forward into the future. And even though uh, Nanny Kazan decides to stay, uh, you get the feeling that she stays because she wants uh, the family to remain connected to their past, the good and the bad, as they move forward uh, into their future on the mainland. And before and I'm we... really glad, I was going to say, I'm, I'm just really glad that um, um, Beyonce, um, I believe from looking at Lemonade, Beyonce, I think, drew on some of those images uh, from Daughters of the Dust, those powerful images of these, these strong, dignified, uh, surviving women in the trees with the Spanish moss hanging. And I'm, I'm really glad that Beyonce, um, through Lemonade, is bringing more attention back to Julie Dash's daughter. With, without a doubt, you know, I, I think you're definitely right. And in fact, I believe Beyonce has has spoken a little bit about the influence that uh, Daughters of the Dust had, you know, has had on Lemonade. And fortunately, thanks to the incredible success of Lemonade, uh, that I think that helped spur a uh, kind of renewed interest in Daughters of the Dust in a theatrical distribution last year. And now it's available on Netflix. So this movie seems to be, you know, re-entering uh, the kind of popular cultural currency after about 25 years of uh, well, I, I guess before we move on to Black Orpheus, I wonder if you could uh, tell us briefly, like, what, when did you first see Dodgers of the Dust? Did it, did it did it make that strong of an impression upon you upon first watching it, or has it kind of grown over time on you? No, it, it, it definitely made an impression on me at the time uh, it was released. Uh, I was living in Boston at the time. I was a bookseller, and uh, you know, it was a time when uh, there were Lots of of uh, writings by African American women being produced, but still there was this question about whether or not there was an audience for those books as well. So uh, at the time I first saw um, Daughters of the Dust, uh, it made such a big impression on me, in part because I was seeing the film with. Um, other African-American women. I actually may have seen it uh, as part of the, uh, the Roxbury uh, Film Festival. Uh, and uh, uh, that brings to mind uh, Tony K. Bambara, who was involved with that uh, uh, film festival, as well as with uh, the making of um, The Daughters of the Dust and Julie Dash's uh, film, I'm sorry, Julie Dash's um, Her book novel. Right. on on the, uh, no, before the novel. She has a, a book about the making of The Daughters of the Dust that Tony K. Bambara um, was part of, or co-wrote with her. So I guess what I'm trying to get to, get to is that at the time the movie came out, um, Writings by African American women were were still 
um, a very big part of of the national cultural discussion, as well as uh, work by African American women photographers, artists, and filmmakers. So I associate Daughters of the Dust with that whole era. That's well. I, I think that may be a nice transition over to the second movie you want to talk about today, which is again jumping back uh, maybe fifty years or so to nineteen fifty nine. Uh, a, a French mo- a movie from a French director, Marcel Camus, called Black Orpheus, uh, which takes place uh, during the kind of day before and day of the spectacular carnival celebrations in the streets of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, uh, and adapts the Greek myth of Orpheus and uh, Eurydice to that celebration. Uh, wh- how, why, did, why did this make it onto your list? And uh, wh- why does this movie uh, uh, resonate with you so much? Well, I tell you, as I've been, you know, thinking about um, my history with movies, I realized how much uh, other people uh, were part of my, uh, my viewing experience. Uh, Black Orpheus, or Feo Negro, was the first, what we used to call, foreign film I ever saw uh, when I was in high school. And I was uh, taken by my high school history teacher and her husband to the band box in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. And it was my first time uh, going to an art house. And I felt at the time like the whole experience changed my life. And seeing uh, Black Orpheus opened up a whole new world to me, Uh, the world of uh, art films and art houses. And also it was an international film set in uh, in Rio uh, during Carnival, and it featured Black people and Black people who were beautiful and talented and not in chains. And once again, I was struck by the music, uh, the music that was uh, composed by uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim and Luis Bonfa. So all of that combined to make this very big impression on me. So this... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Finish that thought, and then I'll jump in. I was going to say it. It, it um, kind of was a, a prelude for me for going to um, to college, going to Oberlin, where I was introduced to uh, the films of uh, of Fellini and Bergman, and on and on. I mean, this this movie is really a uh, and explosion of of color of dance of movement of of music really from the i mean from the the opening credits when we start on the that relatively staid uh, gray um classical freeze of of orpheus and and eurydice and then at the when we see the title card all of a sudden we are no longer you know in ancient greece or ancient rome but rather uh in the kind of mountaintop favelas of brazil and that it's you know it's it's such a small movement but the way that one of the we see three men very brightly dressed uh, i think in red and yellow and and pink tops and they're shaking tambourines and we hear kind of samba music the same kind of uh, rhythm that 
really pervades every single scene of the movie. I, I feel like every every single scene, except for maybe the the descent uh, into into hell, um, is is scored by that uh, that kind of shuffling, joyous uh, samba beat. But the the way that they just kind of burst through the frame in that opening sequence sets the tone so beautifully for for the rest of it. You know, in reading about uh, Black Orpheus, uh, it's it's based on a, a play written by a, quite a, an important Brazilian playwright and poet, um, but again, made by a French filmmaker. And only in, in France and you know, in Europe and the United States uh, is this movie called Black Orpheus. Uh, in, in Brazil, it was just called Orpheus of the Carnival. And I think that is, is because in, uh, in Brazil, um, blackness is such an important part of you know, Brazilian identity that many you know, audience goers kind of assume that, of course, if this is about carnival it's it's not necessarily kind of specifically about you know black people in brazil because you know there are a lot of black people in brazil and of course we would see black people participating in carnival and i wonder if that i mean do you if if daughters of the dust is such an explicit examination of what it means to be black in this country um do you see in this movie's kind of intersections of brazilianness blackness carnival of music, the dance. I mean, clearly this is a tradition that is greatly influenced by African uh, music and, and rhythm. And, and, uh, and I, I wonder if this this movie speaks to you as uh, an, an African-American person or is it in its kind of European kind of art house ambition that, that most, or, or some combination of the two? Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting that, um, that it's not called... Uh, Black Orpheus in, um, in in Brazil. I hadn't known that. Um, and I guess uh, the fact that you're pointing that out um, reminds me um, of, of the problem of language, of even using black, um, because um, I don't actually think... Um, that I agree with you that the people in the film are living their lives during carnival. It's a love story. They're not thinking of themselves as quote unquote black per se. They're they're thinking of themselves as you know two people in love. And going back to Daughters of the Dust. I would say that Julie Dash does not present the characters as quote-unquote black people. She presents them as, as people, as women, as family, uh, having to make a, uh, a decision uh, for themselves mm-hmm. to decide how they're going to deal um, with with their their lives as individuals and as family. Yeah, and I think it's only in this this fraught context uh, of America that we that someone would think to have to say, well, we have to call this Black Orpheus. We can't. We're not going to call this Orpheus of the Carnival. Right. You know, I, I think that's, well, you know, it, it, as we kind of draw to, to the end of the segment, I think that's a, a beautiful place to, to close. But I, I will say that, you know, Daughters of the Dust, um, 
you know, there is quite a bit of tension between a character named Yellow Mary, right, who's who's returning from, you know, having left the Sea Islands for a number of years. And there's a, a number of, uh, you know, she has experienced her own trauma out on the mainland. But I think that there is quite a bit of explicit tension within the context of the movie about the color of her skin, how she may be a bit lighter skin than some of the other members of the family on, on the Sea Island. But you're certainly right in that that Dash's focus is on, you know, how these people interact with one another as family members, as people who share uh, this this history, this tradition, this, you know, this geographic space and what it's going to be like when they when they depart. Um, I, you know, it's um, as these these conversations always always fly by. I wonder if the, is there any any last comment you want to share on, on Black Orpheus or Daughters of the Dust before um, before we end the segment? Yes, I, I guess um, there are two quick things I like to say. Um, one has to do with with the beauty of the films. And I remember that one of the criticisms of Daughters of the Dust that I heard at the time was that perhaps it was too beautiful in its representations of, um, of African Americans. And it brought to mind uh, films like Elvira Madigan, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, The Garden of the Cindy Contini's, which are about very difficult subjects, especially the last two, and yet they're shot very beautifully. And I would just question, you know, why, why the beauty of Daughters of the Dust would be seen as, um, as, as uh, problematic. And then the other, other thing I would like to say about both of the films, Orfeo Negro, Black Orpheus, and Daughters of the Dust, is the role that children play um, in both films. Uh, that although children really don't have any, any lines, that their children are a very prominent part of both both films. And I think that's, that's very uh, significant and important. Well, Kate, I'm so appreciative of you uh, coming on the show again and picking these two movies, helping me catch up with uh, really two movies that I, I've long needed needed to watch. But where can people, um, if they want to learn more about you, about your, your writing, uh, about what you're up to these days, is there a website or a Facebook page or anything else that you can direct them to? Uh, yes, uh, com, and also uh, I've got a review in the current uh, women's review of books and people can find that online that's the women's review of books excellent we will link to that on deepfocusradio.com um kate thank you again for for coming on the show and i hope that you come back soon i I really appreciate every time that you're on thank you tom i'm looking forward to it thanks for the opportunity okay bye-bye now take care bye-bye that was a conversation with Kate Russian, Connecticut poet, about two movies that have had a profound influence on her love and understanding of cinema. Black Orpheus, uh, Marcel Camus' 1959 uh, Brazilian set classical adaptation of the Orpheus and Eurydice uh, myth, and also Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, a 1991 drama celebrated as the first uh, African-American uh, female-directed movie to get a theatrical release in the United States. Um, for the second segment of the show, I'm very happy to welcome someone already set up, Alan Appel, the New Haven Independence one and only Alan Appel, to talk about Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, a, a movie that, I don't know, we'll see if we share any mutual surprise or not, but 
Uh, it won the People's Choice Award at the Toronto Film Festival. I think it's a front runner, at least to you know, be one of the best picture candidates uh, at the Oscars this year. This is a story of Francis McDormand playing a uh, quite a a jaded and defiant uh, mom trying to get some kind of justice for her daughter. I won't say exactly what has happened to her daughter, but who knows? Maybe maybe we'll spoil that a little bit during the show. But she lives in a small town, small rural town in the Ozark Mountains in southern Missouri, and she is trying to rally around a a a very reluctant community to continue to look into what happened to her daughter. Alan, I'm sorry for uh, keeping you waiting for so it's long. Okay. Out, Hi, Tom. Out in the lobby. Nice to be here. It's perfect. Um, so, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't uh, prepare a, a lengthy intro, so we can right. just jump straight into our thoughts. What did you think of this movie? Well, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, where does the famous line come from? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Uh, I don't know. Is that from, network or broadcast news or something i I don't understand the toronto uh film festival and sun i I think it opened sundance i don't i don't get the accolades uh maybe maybe uh uh it's got something to do with the holiday i have never been in the presence of a movie that uh it was so dark Mm. but not dark in an interesting dark way just dark in um uh, it, it just seems to me uh from from every point of view, mistake upon mistake upon mistake. I don't I don't get it, and uh, so much so that I I usually don't do you know a whole lot of research to prepare to to talk to you. I just enjoy the spontaneity of it. But but the but the but the director and the player uh, is the playwright Martin McDonough, who's a well established uh, Irish English playwright, and he has done movies or two before, and this. In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths, I believe the two. And there's, you know, right. Well, so right, he's an experienced filmmaker. Right, in addition and this, to being this a reads like a movie. Right. And this this movie's problems have nothing to do with somebody who, you know, works on the stage and doesn't get how a movie is different from the stage. That's not the problem here. The problem for for me in this film is that um, its very conception and its production design and its look is so dark, and not not just not not metaphysically interesting dark but uh unlikable dark mm. with the with none of the with none of the characters i mean i mean you're you're, you're looking at me uh with with that look that says um i don't know maybe uh you're glad we only have 10 minutes to talk about this but 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 i <laughs> never I, never I, I i'm struggling to find something yeah. positive here unless it's a vision of hell to for those of us who uh, are scroogean during the holiday time I just don't get this. I, I guess we're supposed to love Frances McDormand and and empathize with her, um, with with the reason she purchases these three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Which, after a while, uh, I made a connection with Ferguson, Missouri, uh, because this is all about uh, the uh, a woman outraged at the um, uh, ineptitude of the police department represented so by, she, b- by, what's his name? Woody, 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 Woody Harrelson. Harrelson. Now, Woody Who di- I think is pretty wonderful. In this movie, well, right? the so best thing about Woody is he <laughs> dies halfway through the movie and he just puts himself out of the misery of this from pancreatic cancer. Yet he, he, he is voiceover. He leaves, he inexplicably, he leaves money to help her support the billboards, which are provoking the cops to so find this, the killer. But I, I don't get what's I don't get what's good here. Make your case. So this movie. Well, I don't know if I can because I I was quite dis- this is one of the movies I was most anticipating seeing uh, really all year, considering the cast. Uh, respect for Martin McDonough. Um, 
You know, this movie opens with a character flipping through Flannery O'Connor's collection, A Good Man is Hard to Find. I don't know if you remember uh, that. It's, it's a brief sequence, but the, the young man who runs the advertising agency in Ebbing, Missouri, uh, is really looking over his book, ogling some young, attractive female employee of his. But he's reading A Good Man is Hard to Find, which is this kind of iconic uh, uh, example of Southern American Gothic literature, a kind of merging of sentimentality and violence, uh, of this kind of grotesque uh, nature that much of America can kind of descend uh, or that that afflicts much of America and yet leaves opportunity amidst all of this uh, kind of humor and violence for some kind of grace, some kind of redemption of characters who we found otherwise like totally uh, unappealing and, and vile. And I think that McDonough is trying to work in that genre of literature, especially through the the character of who winds up being the the focal point of the movie, the Sam Rockwell officer Dixon, who is oh, this who is this uh, this racist kind of dunderhead of of a cop who is kind of playing slapstick the first half of the movie and then has a a, a, a moment of, of revelation halfway through uh in a scene that i thought was quite amusingly staged uh the the fire sequence when he when he's reading this this, this final note left by his supervisor but but i i mean i think that the the main the flaw of the movie for me is not necessarily its darkness because i can deal with darkness and even you know i can I can deal with a uh, kind of bitter irony around uh, a community that is so so reluctant to push for any kind of uh, racial or sexual just. I mean, this is the reality, I think, of living in, in much of America today, what Frances McDormand's character is pushing up against, and she is no, you know, she is no saint herself. She's no, not necessarily no. the most empathetic. But I think the movie, in focusing so much on this totally irredeemable character to make him the one worthy of redemption was too baffling of a decision That's uh, right. and too cynical of a decision too for baffling, this movie. Too cynical. And I love dark. God knows. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I mean, I, 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 the, the darker the better. The problem here is this is not believable darkness. And, you know, even in Ferguson, um, things aren't that bleak. Not every single character uh, is, is utterly, um, um, you know, beyond redemption uh, uh, and, until their fire and brimstone arrives. I mean, this, I, I mean, uh, everybody here um uh is uh, is quite ugly and they speak in uh, i mean um, we should talk about the script for a second because uh, i really i really do think that one of the reasons why this is dark and uninteresting is because you don't have any nuanced characters at all i mean everybody um uh is nasty uh uh everybody uh is um Except for maybe the son of Francis McDormand, played by oh, the lovely Lucas Hedges from right. Lady Bird. Only last the week. son, and and and, and he's what, a little too meek though to make any kind of impression. Well, do you <laughs> in that sequence about halfway through the film where she drives him to school, and he's a little. I mean, this is this is about the third or fourth film where I noticed that children are embarrassed when their parents drive them to drop them off at school, and we could t- we could you could do a whole film festival about this. <laughs> but this kid gets out, and 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 because she has put the billboards up. And everybody supports the police in this town, or most of the people do. Uh, as she pulls up, there is an anonymous Coca-Cola or soda thrown on her windshield. The kid gets out of the car to join his friends who are standing there. Frances McDormand gets out, and, you know, she stands in front of the kid. She challenges the, wh- whoever in the group, and she basically tries to break the legs of two of her son's friends uh, just to prove her street creds as being some badass mother i mean i don't uh, why would anybody who has the slightest understanding of human relations of being a parent for whom we're supposed to have any sympathy act that way 
this makes no sense to me at all. I mean, I could take you through this movie scene by scene. I actually have a note and I said, how is it possible to get these scenes so bad with everything, one mistake piled after another? I mean, I really just don't know. And that my only answer is that it's got, it's the Jerry Lewis syndrome where, you know, when a movie is produced, directed, and stars Jerry Lewis. Mm. Now, Martin McDonough wrote this and he directed it, but there was no one who told this uh, famous Irish play, uh, playwright, no one who told him, um, why are we doing this? And uh, what are you leaving your audience with, which is really almost nothing? Can you take, so as we, we have about Sorry. a minute left, is there, can you take me to, to one scene that you, th- you said you could take, take a scene by scene through, through uh, a kind of case study and what not to do as a writer-director? Because I think that really only one scene jumps out at me as so flagrantly unbelievable uh, that it kind of threw me out of the narrative. And that's the one where this menacing former soldier shows up at the gift shop at which Francis McDormand's character works and out of nowhere kind of threatens to sexually assault her. Right. And, he, and, <laughs> and that he's, guy, you know, he's a character that re- does return. And I do love the or I do like the ambiguity in which the movie ends um, where, you know, we're not quite sure if we know who the perpetrator of the crime is. But the question is no longer who did it. The question is what will be a satisfying uh, and meaningful form of redemption or retribution and- right well i believe the reason why you're tr- you're troubled by that scene is that he's a he's a kind of deus ex machina the movie has to has to address like who the person is and he comes there but he's a he's a total red herring he he turns out to be uh he turns out to be the the reason the uh the the sam rockwell character uh, thinks he's got his redemption by becoming a true detective which turns out to be botched anyway and then but I, 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 so here's the scene that I think. And take us out on this. You have 30 seconds to. All right. Here's the deal. So Francis McDormand, after, after really being a kind of a maternal terrorist and bothering this town, she becomes an actual terrorist in the sequence where she throws three Molotov cocktails from across. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's from her. You can't believe she runs a gift shop for cute little booties. She's throwing it from the advertising agency. She's throwing right? it from it's the, the advertising agency, and she and she lights up the entire place. And she look uh, and in while she's lighting up the entire place, the Sam Rockwell character who's inside um, takes his time. Uh, you know, the place is in flames. It looks like it. It looks like uh, Dresden after the bombing, and it doesn't bother him at all. He keeps reading his note from the dead Woody Harrelson. I think, and, and well, and, he's also wearing headphones, right? He is he's, uh, he he is inoculated feel, to the he reality doesn't feel of the, the warm thing because we need to have this information conveyed. <laughs> and plus, we've got this music from the Middle East that pumps up these scenes with like uh, terroristic uh, tones. I think the whole thing is so false. Plus, he gets cured of his burns within minutes, and so we can continue the story. And I'm sorry, I think it should be no billboards or no stars for three billboards. <laughs> Uh, Alan, and I love dark movies, but thank you, Tom, for letting me rant. Thank you for the hot take on Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. <laughs> sure to win the Best Picture Oscar, and much to, much to Alan's uh, disappointment, I'm sure. Um, you can find a, the recording of this show and a complete archive of over two years of episodes about movies in New Haven at deepfocusradio.com. Uh, we'll catch up with you next week for another show.